Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about climate science and renewable technologies. My guest on Zoom is Mark Jacobson, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering and Director of the Atmospheric Energy Program in Stanford University. Mark uses numerical models to study the effects of energy systems and vehicles on climate and air pollution and to analyze renewable energy resources. Mark developed the first 3D urban air pollution model that accounted for all major meteorological feedbacks. And then in 2000, he used this model to discover black carbon, which is the main component of soot. That black carbon was likely the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide. This discovery resulted in Mark testifying before Congress in 2007, and in his research becoming the scientific basis for lots and lots of climate legislation. You know, things like the U.S. House's Arctic Climate Preservation Act in 2008, the Senate's Diesel Emission Reduction Act in 2010, the European Parliament's resolution calling for black carbon controls on climate grants in 2011, and, and many, many more. Even the 2019 Green New Deal legislation contains goals established by Mark's research. For his black carbon discovery and modeling, Mark received the American Meteorological Society Henry G. Houghton Award and an American Geophysical Union Ascent Award. And as if that wasn't enough, Mark's group also developed the first world wind map in 2005 and showed that the actual global wind power in a given year was enough to supply all the world's energy needs. I mean, this is hard data showing that the entire world could be run on just wind energy. His group went on to develop roadmaps to transition New York, California, and Washington state to 100% renewable water, wind, solar energy. And this led to even more climate legislation. As of 2022, Mark's group had created detailed plans on, and grid studies for all 50 U.S. states, hundreds of cities worldwide, 145 countries, and well over 300 international corporations to all transition to 100% renewable water, wind, solar energy. For his work in energy, Mark received the Global Green Policy Design Award, a Cosarelli Prize, the Judy Friedman Lifetime Achievement Award, and was selected as one of the world's 100 most influential people in climate policy by Apolitical in both 2019 and 2022. You know, Mark, I could just keep going. There's so much that you've done, but I think our listeners would really rather just hear from you. Where would you like to start? Well, I mean, my work has spanned looking at impacts of air pollution particles and gases on climate and, and also on human health. And I started my career working in computer modeling, developing models to study the impacts, um, in addition to looking at the impacts of black carbon, for example, on climate. But over the last couple of decades, I've also been looking at solutions to air pollution and climate problems uh, through clean renewable energy systems. And so, as you mentioned, we've been developing energy plans for countries and states and cities and towns to transition entirely to clean renewable energy for all purposes. That's namely a clean renewable energy we defined as zero emissions for not only greenhouse gases that affect climate, but also uh, air pollutants that affect human health. So basically going to, and the idea here is to electrify all energy. So if we electrify all energy, then we stop emissions. Combustion uh, is the major source of both greenhouse gases and pollution particles. We want to eliminate combustion by electrifying and then provide the electricity with just wind, water, and solar. So that's onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, 
geothermal electricity, some geothermal heat as well, and some solar heat, uh, tidal wave, wave power, tidal power, wave power, and some hydroelectric power. Um, and then we, this is, those are the sources of the electricity and some heat, as I mentioned, but we would also need storage, electricity storage, heat storage, mm -hmm. cold storage, some hydrogen. Uh, because we're electrifying all energy, we no longer have gasoline or diesel for transportation. We'd use battery electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles for uh, for long distance transportation, electric vehicles for everything else. Uh, we would electrify buildings by going to electric heat pumps for air and water heating, air conditioning, uh, electric induction cooktops. Uh, we would, and in industry, we'd go to electric arc furnaces, induction furnaces, resistance furnaces for high temperature processes. And we provide in all these sectors, the electricity with just wind, water, and solar. And then we'd have storage as well. So this is really a holistic system that uh, we transition everything to no longer burn fuels and eliminate air pollutants and climate relevant gases and particles at the same time. You're, you're saying you're eliminating all combustion. So I assume that includes biofuels, biomass, all of those uh, allegedly green technologies. Oh yes, yeah. We, you know, those are anything you burn is not green. So we want to eliminate <laughs> any type of fuel that's combustion. That includes biogas, biofuels. Biofuels are for um, for transportation. Biogas uh, is usually can be transportation, but often heating uh, and biomass, which is often for electricity generation and some heat. Uh, so we don't want that at all because if, uh, because it results in it's your combustion, you result in air pollution and, and climate relevant gases. If it's a biofuel, if it's coming, for example, like ethanol, which is often a replacement for gasoline, and for example, E85, which is 85% ethanol, 15% uh, gasoline, uh, that is coming in the United States, almost all from corn. Uh, it takes enormous amounts of land, um, just to give you an idea, uh, to because well, photosynthesis to grow any bio crop is only 1% efficient. Whereas, so it only converts 1% of the sun's energy into to actual energy that's used as sure. a fuel. Whereas solar photovoltaics, for example, on the same land are 20% efficient or up to 23 or 24% efficient. So you get 20 times more energy for the same land with a solar PV panel than you do with a corn. Or ethanol. And not only that, you know, a combustion vehicle uses four times the same energy to go the same distance as an electric vehicle. In other words, of all the electricity you put in a battery in an electric car, 80% uh, of it goes to move the car and the rest is waste heat. Whereas with a an ethanol or gasoline vehicle, only 20% of the energy in the gasoline or ethanol goes to move the car and the rest is waste heat. So you use four times more energy to go the same distance with an ethanol car than an electric car, and you use 20 times more land for growing a oh, the corn for the ethanol. The ethanol yeah. It's a solar panel. So you end up need 80 times more land, 20 times four is 80, 80 times more land to go the same distance in an ethanol car from corn versus an electric car from solar photovoltaics. So we're talking enormous amounts of land. Then you, with an uh, electric car running on solar, you eliminate all air pollutants, uh, not only 
producing the electricity, but also at the tailpipe. And you eliminate all greenhouse gases with an ethanol car running on from corn, produced from corn. You still have pollution coming out of the tailpipe that's about the same as gasoline. You still have greenhouse, you still have carbon dioxide coming out of the tailpipe, even though you grew the corn and taking CO2 out of the air. You actually, all the energy it takes to convert, you know, to grow the corn and then convert the corn into ethanol turns out in the land use change emissions associated with that. Uh, is actually about the same as gasoline. So you don't, with a biofuel crop, you're not reducing any carbon uh, and you're just about the same amount of air pollution as gasoline uh, compared with going to electric cars powered by solar or wind, you're eliminating almost, you're eliminating all tailpipe and uh, upstream emissions of production of the fuel. And this is an enormous difference in not only land, uh, but also, costs of energy. I mean, we did a study recently looking at um, a proposal to uh, by this group that wants to add carbon capture to about 34 ethanol refineries in five states in the upper Midwest in the United States. And they want to spend about $5.6 billion for adding carbon capture to the ethanol refineries. And then they want to build, build 2,000 miles of pipelines over thousands of properties, thousands of people's individual properties. And so they're trying to actually take their land to do this if they're not voluntarily donating their land for the pipelines. But so I did this analysis and found that, well, just, I mean, that ethanol in those refineries is used for E85, which is a bio, you know, the biofuel used to replace gasoline. And so because of the efficiency of electric vehicles versus this ethanol vehicles, even if you use like a Ford F-150, which has, an, there's an electric version and a flex fuel version where you can run on ethanol. And even that indicates that it's a four times, a factor of four difference in the distance you go in the same energy with the uh, electric vehicle. Turns out the fuel cost savings, if you go the electric route, if you buy the electric version of that uh, is for an individual driving 15,000 miles a year for 15 years, each person will save about $35,000 in fuel costs. And even if the price of the car is 10 or $15,000 more, uh, you're still saving 20 to $25,000 in fuel costs. For all the people affected by this pipeline, if they spent the same $5.6 billion on building like wind to power these electric vehicles, these uh, consumers who are driving would save $100 billion in fuel costs alone over a 30 year period. And this indicates that, you know, so this whole project is really designed to put money in the pockets of agricultural people, the big agricultural owners taking money away from consumers and drivers, ordinary citizens who are driving around with these really wasteful combustion vehicles. And this applies to gasoline vehicles too. I mean, electric vehicles are so efficient, they save everybody huge amounts of money in comparison with combustion vehicles. In addition, by the way, even with the carbon capture, the driving, switching to the electric cars instead of running on wind uh, would save two and a half to four times the carbon emissions as this carbon capture project. And so, you, it's just ridiculous to spend money on carbon capture. That's one point I want to make. Um, it's so much more efficient to just get rid of combustion 
not to build pipelines to pipe carbon dioxide around and add capture equipment, which requires a lot of energy. We want to take that same money and get clean, renewable electricity and transportation. Uh, and that saves money. It saves carbon. It saves land. Uh, it's just a much better way to go. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, you're, you're talking about electric vehicles and such. And I assume we're moving away from hybrids because there's still that combustion component within the hybrid car. Yeah, hybrids should be a thing of the past. We don't want any gasoline or diesel going into any vehicles anymore. Yeah. Um, you mentioned hydrogen fuel cells. Um, so you see that as a way of taking the power off grid and providing transport or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, so hydro, well, hydrogen has some applications in this new world. Um, well, first of all, hydrogen should be green, which is produced from wind, water, solar, electricity, mm -hmm. not what we call gray hydrogen, which is from natural gas or blue hydrogen, which is natural gas with the carbon capture I just talked about. And the main applications of hydrogen are steel production. Instead of using coal, for example, which is used now, to convert iron ore to pure iron, uh, we can use hydrogen and green hydrogen to do that same thing. And so, and then if you use renewable or like wind, water, solar, electricity for the rest of the uh, electricity and heat needed for steel production, we can actually reduce 98% of all carbon emissions from steel just with what we call green hydrogen. Uh, and also ammonia production, already ammonia is produced from hydrogen, but the hydrogen, 96% of all hydrogen produced today is from natural gas. So if we switch that hydrogen to green hydrogen, that would be very beneficial. And then long distance transport, like most passenger vehicles should be just battery electric vehicle and you know, mid-sized vehicles with battery electric, even most trucks. But for really long distance aircraft, long distance ships, long distance, very long distance trucks and trains, hydrogen fuel cell is more efficient. Uh, short distance aircraft and sh ships would be battery electric. So those are the three main applications of hydrogen. Maybe some grid electricity storage for hydrogen, but in combination with batteries, but never uh, hydrogen alone for grid electricity storage. And we do not want to use hydrogen for heating buildings, and we don't want to use it for passenger vehicles, sure. just not nearly so efficient as for buildings. We'd rather use electric heat pumps. They use one-fourth the energy as even hydrogen would uh, because they move heat around, they don't produce it. And uh, for transportation, as I mentioned, we want to use uh, battery electrics. I know in 2010, you did a TED debate on um, does the world need nuclear energy? Um, do, where does nuclear fit into this or does it? Well, we do not need any new nuclear power and we don't advocate for that because, I mean, let alone the fact that the costs and delays are so significant. We have seven years to solve 80% of the climate problem and air pollution problem. I mean, 7.4 million people die every year right now from air pollution and we need to eliminate emissions immediately. So a new nuclear power plant takes, in North America and Europe, takes between 17 and 21 years between planning and operation at this time. There's a plant in Georgia, the only plant, well, the only two reactors being built in the U.S. are this one plant in Georgia, and they're on years 17 and 18 between planning and operation, and they've cost $35 billion so far, and that is about $15.2 per watt, and that compares with $1 per watt for new wind or solar. So the capital cost is 
over 15 times higher, or 15 times the capital cost of new wind or solar, when you count for the difference in the uh, how often it runs, it's about a factor of 10 times higher cost of energy for new nuclear in the United States. In Europe, there's a new plant just went on in Finland after 21 years. There's one in France, it's about 20 years. The one There's one in UK that's gonna be also on the order of 19 or 20 years. They're just costing enormous amounts, taking too long. New small modular nuclear reactors, those have been proposed, but you know, there won't even there won't even be test ones available until 2029, 2030. And they're gonna have the same problems, delays in high cost, uh, and take a long, taking a long time to build. And on top of that, we have you know other energy security issues associated with nuclear weapons proliferation risk. Right. When you have small modular reactors, they're easier to ship around the world. So I think the weapons proliferation is going to expand and more countries will obtain nuclear energy, which is the gateway to nuclear weapons. And then we have meltdown risk. 1.5% of all nuclear reactors ever built have melted down to some degree. We have waste issues. We have to store the waste for two to 300,000 years. We have underground uranium mining risk. We're half the, uh, sorry, about 10 to 15% of all underground uranium miners have died of lung cancer historically. And then there's carbon carbon dioxide equivalent emissions associated with nuclear. Uh, there's energy required to build the plants. There's energy required to refine uranium, mine and refine uranium continuously over the life of the plants. And then there's direct heat and water vapor emissions from the nuclear power plant. I mean, when you're you're not burning coal, for example, when you burn coal, you're actually burning it. But in this case, you have a nuclear reaction that creates heat. And some of that heat, a lot of it actually gets goes right to the air to, you know, heats the air directly. Then you have a lot of water vapor because you need water to cool the reactors. Water vapor is a natural greenhouse gas, but it's also emitted by humans and it contributes to global warming as well. Well, what about fusion? We're hearing a lot of news now about Helian Energy's contract to deliver 50 megawatts to Microsoft by 2028. That sounds amazing. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that'll never happen. (laughs) (laughs) You're scared. Fusion is so far away. It's, I mean, they spend a huge amounts of energy just to get the tiniest amount of energy at the at an enormous an enormous cost. I mean, I think compared with fission, if it actually did work, it's actually a lot safer and cleaner. But it's not gonna. It's just, I mean, it's it, it's a dream right now for a lot of people, and it's uh, we we need to focus on things that work and that we can implement today. So this is we you know I just finished a book called No Miracles Needed. And Mm -hmm. the purpose of the book is to not only show what's possible, but what we do not need and is not necessary and what we should not waste our time on. Because, you know, when we have an important problem that needs to be solved immediately, uh, we don't have time to invest in or money to invest in technologies that are not right on the cusp of being available or already available. I mean, we have 95% of the technologies we need to solve the climate and pollution problems we face and energy security problems we face. What we don't have is the long distance aircraft and ships, but we know how to do that. So we have limited resources and such a huge problem worldwide. We cannot be spending time and money on technologies that may or may not be available in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Why would we do that when we can take that same investment and actually get some reductions of emissions immediately today? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. So if we electrify everything and, you know, our vehicles are electric, we're putting a lot more stress on our grids. And I know you've done grid studies. Is, is the American grid going to be able to stand up to that or we're going to have to rebuild the whole thing? Um, yeah, we can we can keep the grid stable with 100% clean renewable energy for all purposes. And it's really just an optimization problem. I mean, think of, the, well, right now, I mean, even today, I mean, we need backup power because, you know, let's say we don't have any renewables on the grid. Uh, let's say we have nuclear, which is flat baseload supply of electricity. Coal, right. coal also provides us flat Base supply load. of electricity. But first of all, nuclear and coal, they're down between 10 and 15% of the days of the year in the US and France, nuclear is down now 48% of the year. So, you know, you have this flat supply and then suddenly it goes to zero. So you need backup already. And the other thing is demand varies like this. And then if you have a flat supply, if you have a flat supply like this and you have a variable demand, you also need something to meet the difference. And right now that difference is met by uh, hydropower and natural gas primarily. And hydropower is very dispatchable. You can you can provide it within 15 seconds. Natural gas takes about five minutes to provide 100% power. So what we're going to do there is get rid of the natural gas, keep the existing hydropower, and replace the natural gas with more batteries and also uh, other types of electricity storage, such as there's well there's pumped hydropower, there's concentrated solar power with storage. There are flywheels, there's compressed air storage, there's what's called gravitational storage with solid masses. There's also uh, hydrogen fuel cells or electricity storage and use. And so that's one thing. So we need storage is one way to help keep the grid stable. The other is called demand response, where we can actually ship, change the demand. I mean, if we have a variable demand, you can give people incentives not to use electricity at certain times of the day, and that'll push the demand over in time to a later hour when you do have more renewables available. And then another way is to interconnect geographically uh, wind and solar. Wind and solar are variable. I mean, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, but it turns out like if you interconnect wind over large distances, namely like a few hundred kilometers, the if the wind's not blowing in one place, it's often blowing somewhere else. So you can smoothen out the overall supply of electricity by interconnecting wind farms over a large geographic distance. Same with solar. And then connecting wind with solar, you can also smoothen that out. So that's a third way to keep the grid stable. Uh, a fourth way is just importing electricity from outside of a region. or you know, And that happens already right now. I mean, US gets electricity from Canada, for example. Um, some states get electricity from other states. Some countries get electricity across borders. So that's another way. And then by electrifying all energy, that actually helps to keep the grid stable. Um, because when, right now, you know, we have an electricity sector. There are four major sectors, electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry. And if we electrify the non-electricity sectors, it actually creates uh, what, are, what are called flexible loads. So for example, a battery, a battery electric vehicle you, you don't need to plug in the battery right to a wind turbine. It has a battery in it. Uh, the car, the electric vehicle has a battery in it. So you can charge that battery any time of day or night. So you can use demand response to shift the time of battery charging to night. By, like where I live, for example, there are three different electricity rates. There's a, the, a high rate that's in the afternoon, early evening. There's a really low rate between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. And there's a medium rate in between for all other hours. 
So there's a strong incentive to charge my electric car after 11 p.m. And because the price of electricity in the summer can be a factor of five different between the high and the low rate. So that's demand response. And by electrifying vehicles, for example, you create more of these flexible loads that could be shifted in time. And anyway, that, that's another technique to help keep the grid stable. So, so if we're moving all these sectors to electricity. I mean, obviously we're putting more electricity through the pipe. Is the infrastructure going to support that? Uh, yeah. So, well, we do need to expand the infrastructure, but not as much as people think, because okay. first of all, right now, electricity is 20% of all of all end use, what we call end use energy, what people actually use. And then the other sectors are the rest. If we want to electrify all energy sectors, it turns out our electricity, well, we'd have 100%, all, everything would be electricity in theory, but electricity is so much more efficient than combustion. So for example, when we go from gasoline cars to electric cars, our, our energy requirements go down by a factor of four. And we go to natural gas heaters for buildings, for example, to electric heat pumps, our energy for that process also goes down by a factor of four. And then also when we go to wind, water, solar, we don't need to mine, transport, or refine fossil fuels or uranium anymore for fuels. And that's about 11% of all energy worldwide. We get rid of that. And then when we electrify industry, we save a few more percent. Turns out we save by going to this process, we save about 56% of energy worldwide. So instead of needed, needing 100 units of total energy, we now go down to about 44 units. So we started, let's say we started with 100 units and 20 units were electricity. Now with wind, water, solar, we have 44 units and all 44 are electricity. So we're basically just a little more than doubling our electricity requirements, and but we're reducing all energy about 56%. So I'm pretty optimistic we can solve the problem. You're listening to The Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Mark Jacobson about climate science and renewable technologies. Mark, I'd like to turn to solutions, you know, what our listeners can actually do to help themselves and the planet. Um, what would you suggest? I mean, where do they start? Electrify their homes, buy EVs, lobby Congress? You know, where do you send them? Um, well, individuals can do can do a lot on their own, in their own lives. First thing I would do is, if you can, electrify as much as possible in your own life. So uh, certainly, well, the very simplest thing is weatherizing your home, so putting weather stripping and windows to reduce heat loss, uh, putting LED lights, replacing incandescent lights, or even you know the other types of lights. So you, LED lights use one tenth the energy as an incandescent light. Then you know the next step is going to electric heat pumps. Switch out that natural gas uh, air heater for electric heat pump air heater. Uh, switch out the natural gas water heater for electric heat pump water heater switch out a natural gas stove for electric induction cooktop stove, uh, switch out your gasoline vehicle or diesel vehicle for an electric vehicle. Uh, then, you know, certainly using less energy, like uh, you know, taking fewer trips, you're telecommuting more, public transportation. And then, you know, there's a lot you can do in your community too. Uh, and, well, to, you can join the groups that are, you know, encourage this or educate the public. But also, in a lot of is we really need strong policies put in place. So encouraging people to run run for office that uh, are 
want to also make a change. I mean, I think, so you can do things at the political level, but you can also do things in your own life to make a change. Yeah, all, all those are just the basic things that we talk about all the time on the Climate Hour. Um, I've read that you live in a net zero home that runs on renewable energy. What does that look like? I mean, what have you done? Yeah, so I built uh, my own home in 2017 with no no gas on the property uh, and I have electric vehicles. So it's all electric. It has solar on the roof. It has batteries in the garage. It has electric heat pumps for air and water heating and air conditioning. Uh, it has LED lights. Um, it's very ins- well insulated as well, and electric induction cooktop. So, yeah, I've had this for now six years. Produce on average twenty percent more electricity than I consume, and send the rest back to the grid. And it just the temperature is perfect in the home. I've just it's never been more comfortable. Uh, and even on the hottest day of the year, it's just perfect temperature inside and hardly using any energy. And I send, it's still on the hottest day of the year, I send back electricity to the grid. So it's, I would, and I saved a lot of money just up front by not having to pay a gas hookup fee. I saved about $6,000 because the utility wanted to charge $6,000 for me just hooking up gas to the property. I avoided $10,000 in gas pipes. I mean, there's no reason anybody should need two forms of energy in their, on their, in their home. it's, you know, electricity can do everything the natural gas can do, but it can do it better and, and cheaper and more efficiently. And it's just simpler. I mean, life is just simpler and more comfortable uh, without natural gas. And everything you're mentioning is very accessible. I mean, nothing new. I mean, a lot of those technologies you mentioned have been in Europe and Japan for like 50 years. So this is really proven technology you're using. Nothing sci-fi there. Right. Well, yeah, it's all commodities technology, and, and but it's getting better. I mean, they're more efficient, mm-hmm. lower costs, and there are also a lot of subsidies in the U.S., at least in some, a lot of other places as well. So subsidies, good point. What about climate equity? I know there's a lot of, of communities that are struggling to just feed themselves. Obviously, they're not going to be able to afford the kind of changes you want, or they're living in apartments and they don't have access. How do we address their needs? Well, I think it, ha- it has to be done. I mean, there's a lot being done through the subsidies. For example, California just uh, has a new plan. They're spending $8.6 billion just on electrification of buildings and giving and getting people to adopt batteries in their buildings and energy efficiency. So three things, energy efficiency, electrification, and batteries. And But, the, but a lot of these subsidies are loaded to help uh, underserved communities. And so that's you know through the subsidy system we can help, uh, but also I mean the the nice thing is you know when we you know air pollution affects communities that are lower income communities the most because you get a lot of sources of emissions right near uh, these communities and so the solution when we transition from fossil fuels biofuels to clean renewable energy we're eliminating air pollution which means that the people who benefit the most from that are people who are living uh, near these near these uh, facilities that are were emitting the pollutants that we're getting rid of. So there's a benefit in the solution, uh, but you know, so it's a combination of providing more subsidies and also, but also educating the public. It's going to help everybody to transition. I mean, like I can't, I mean, the, the fuel cost savings alone, just go, going to an electric car I mean, somebody might say, well, I can't afford an electric car. Well, 
it, I mean, you're going to pay, anybody is going to pay far more for a gasoline car than an electric car over several years. I mean, even if there's an upfront, even if a upfront cost of an electric car is five or 10,000 more. And in the US, of course, we do get a $7,500 tax subsidy for just buying an electric car. And there, that evens out a lot of cars, so they're about the same. But even if it is, even if you have to pay extra, you're going to save that money really fast if you're driving quite a bit. Um, even if you're not driving a lot, but driving a medium amount, you'll save a bit. You'll save quite a lot. And we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. So it's going to be cheaper to get that electric car, invest in that, uh, even if it's uh, initially it's going to cost more. What about other countries? I mean, we, we have our, our communities that are challengers, also the, the global south. I mean, these countries that can't afford these transitions. Um, is there any plan in place to help bring them along? Well, again, a transition is going to benefit every country financially. Just uh, here's some numbers like, you know, worldwide, uh, there are 7.4 million people die of air pollution. Okay. That translates to about $30 trillion per year based on statistical cost of life and morbidity that the world is paying for combustion. And climate change is going to cost another $30 trillion per year by 2050. Energy right now costs about $11 trillion a year, and that'll be $17 trillion per year. So the health and climate effects of energy are actually far more expensive than the actual energy costs. So if a country says, well, we can't afford to change, you can't afford not to change because you're paying so much money and your your dam the damage of like, keeping fossil fuels is so much greater than not keeping fossil fuels. But let's say we ignore the health and climate cost benefits. Costs eleven trillion today, seventeen trillion dollars per year worldwide to, to go to um, in, without going to renewable energy. If we go to wind, water, solar, our energy requirements go down fifty six percent, as I mentioned. But the cost per unit energy also go down another fifteen percent. So instead of paying 17 to 18 trillion dollars per year in 2050 for energy, we'll be paying 6.6 .6 trillion dollars per year. That's a 63% reduction of our annual energy costs. That means, and then if you count the health and climate cost reductions, which we eliminate health and climate costs, we go down 92%. So it's a 63% reduction of just by transitioning. So that alone should that should uh, any country that's about the same. I mean, there's a range for all the countries, but it's in that range. It's going to be between 50 and 70% benefit for every country. A annual cost of energy is going to go down. So the payback time of this, the upfront cost, the upfront capital cost of a transition worldwide is about $62 trillion. And if we're saving about $11 trillion per year, going from 17 point, you know, 17 and a half to Six and a half trillion uh, per year. That's you know, eleven trillion dollars savings. Sixty-two trillion dollar capital costs. We're on the order of six-year payback time. So there's there's no reason for any country not to do this. So I mean, we could, elect, we could electrify to, the entire world, and it would pay for itself in six years. Yeah, it's going to pay for itself, and just in the energy cost. Not if well, it'll the health the health and climate costs plus energy costs will pay for itself in one year. So right. one year payback time, if you account for energy, health, and climate costs for transitioning. So any country that says, well, we can't afford it. Well, you can't afford not to do it because you're just wasting money. Hmm. And so, I mean, there's no excuse. I don't, uh, you can say, well, we can't, we can't invest in it, but that just means you want to just waste more money on your current energy. I mean, some of these, like an island country, what are they paying for electricity? 
like American Samoa, you know, and even Hawaii, Hawaii is like Hawaii. 40 yeah. cents a kilowatt hour, 38 cents a kilowatt hour. American Samoa is like 50, 55. Caribbean countries are like 50, 55 cents a kilowatt hour. You know, they could be paying 10 cents a kilowatt hour for their electricity instead of 50, 55 cents if they're producing it themselves. Mm-hmm. So how long does it take them to save that money? And what about the cost of gasoline to drive their cars around the islands? Uh, you know, it's, they have to ship the gasoline there. If you can produce your own electricity to drive an electric car there. And your 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 energy costs, your fuel costs are going to go down by a factor of four to, to six, actually probably more in those islands, by a factor of six to eight. So how fast would it take to pay off your investment? So there's a lot of economic incentive to make this move as well as planetary yes. health, all those things. Um, I'm curious about your roadmaps. It sounds like you've done a lot of those. I mean, all the states, all the cities, countries, you, you and your team put a lot of work into that. What kind of timelines are built into the map? If you're saying you can achieve 100% renewable, what's your, I mean, is there, are you saying by 2030, by 2050, what's your timeline in those roadmaps? Well, ideally, it's twenty. It's eighty percent by twenty thirty and one hundred percent by twenty thirty five to twenty fifty. So ideally, by twenty thirty five. But you know, there's that's the ideal. Um, now, whether that happens will depend on political willpower. Sure, sure. Um, I I noticed, and you know, I'm reading some of your papers and such. I noticed that there's been a lot of commitments. You know, cities, states, whatever that are committing to these transitions. Well, what's that look like? I mean, percentage or whatever number. Uh, is there a good percentage taking action on this? Well, in the U.S., there are 19 states and territories that have 100% renewable electricity rules, that could be laws or executive orders, and but there are no states that have 100% renewable all energy sectors. Worldwide, there are 62 countries that have 100% renewable electricity goals. Only one country, Denmark, has 100% renewable all energy goals. And there, but there are you know, hundreds of cities worldwide, including about 180 in the US that have committed to 100% renewables. There are over 400 companies now internationally that have uh, committed to 100% renewable in their global operations. And actually, eight of the 10 biggest companies in the world have committed to, to this as well. So the companies are actually doing a lot of the work uh, in actually transitioning. They're buying and building wind farms and solar farms and battery battery electric vehicle fleets and battery storage systems. Uh, and there are actually 10 countries in the world that are at or near 100% renewable electricity in their annual production of electricity. You're so, talking about multiple sectors. I mean, obviously, the electricity going in our buildings, it's pretty easy to transition that to wind, solar, water. Um, I guess the big sector transportation, harder to move that into the electric. Um, it, it's in theory, well, it's hard just because there's so many cars you have to change. But in theory, though, it's, you know, the technology average, is there, just go out and buy it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's in concept is easy, but they're just, the numbers are just so large in terms of how many we need to transition. And in industrial, the industrial sector, and you mentioned some of the hierarch furnaces and stuff like that. How hard is it going to be to transition the industrial sector to total electricity, hundred percent renewable? Um, Well, that's, again, you need incentives or policies to be put in place because a lot of these, Companies, they you know they have an operation going and they've already put in a lot of capital and they don't want to just change, uh, even though it will be beneficial in the long run. So, but in techno technically, I mean, we can transition. 
like electric, the industrial sector uses, they use electricity, they use they need heat for high temperature processes. And there are also some emissions that are called process emissions that are due to chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. So we can provide all the electricity with wind, water, solar right away. So that helps. Uh, we can provide, well, and say right away without changing the industry itself. If we, if we develop, if we change our grid, if we change the electric power sector, then the electricity that goes into these. It's still uh, there. They don't have to retool. They just keep doing. Yeah. They don't have to do anything new. Um, And a lot of, but heat, a lot of the heat they get is right now from just burning fossil fuels. So that we'd want to change to electric arc furnaces, electric induction furnaces, electric resistance furnaces. And those are all existing technology. I mean, one third of all, United States industry is actually electric already. It's really the other two thirds. And, and so we, for the, for high temperature process, we want to use those te- existing technologies. So we have to swap them out basically. And then there are also emissions, uh, what we call process emissions, like steel has chemical reactions that produce carbon dioxide. So there I mentioned earlier that we can go to green steel where we, instead of using coal or coke, to reduce iron ore to pure iron, use hydrogen, green hydrogen. And that process coupled with electrifying with renewable energy uh, results in 90% reduction of carbon emissions from steel. You can go for cement, you can go to what's called geopolymer cement, which eliminates 100% of CO2 emissions if you provide all the heat and electricity for that with wind, water, solar. Uh, And there's also recycling of cement. And, but it's not, we don't want to add carbon capture to cement because if we do, that consumes electricity. And if it consumes renewable electricity, that prevents that renewable electricity from replacing a fossil source. And if you replace a fossil source, you not only eliminate more CO2 than you would from the cement, but you would eliminate the air pollution, the mining, and the infrastructure from the fossil source. So we it's actually, we're better off allowing the cement CO2 emissions to to go to the air and take that renewable electricity that would have been used and the money you would have spent on the carbon capture to replace a fossil source. You'll get more benefits from that. You also can avoid all these pipelines you'll need to build to capture that CO2. Sure, sure. Have you done any modeling on plastics? I know the fossil fuel industry is redirecting a lot of their, you know, still mining, drilling, all that stuff, but redirecting it into the producing new plastics and building that. Have you done any modeling on that? I haven't worked on that topic, but uh, I mean, plastics, you know, non-energies like, well, coal doesn't, you know, coal doesn't have any application in that. And so if we, you know, if we transition to 100% renewables, 100% wind, water, solar, we can essentially eliminate all purpose for natural gas and coal, but oil would still be used for uh, some pharmaceuticals and, some plastics and other applications it currently is, but that represents about 10% of oil. So we get rid of 90% of oil by getting rid of energy energy uses of oil. And then over time, we can also get rid of that last 10% of oil if we can come up with alternatives uh, to, to oil for these other applications. Okay. Um, I noted that you're the co-founder of the Solutions Project. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so in 2011, uh, I co-founded with um, Mark Ruffalo, Marco Craples, and Josh Fox, a nonprofit that was, well, we were developing these energy plans at Stanford and this nonprofit was really taking these plans and, and combining them with 
business culture and community to try to educate the public. So we would, it was really, actually it was really useful because, and, and helpful in that nobody listens to me as a scientist, but when I combine with people in the business community, cultural leaders, community leaders, and, uh, and others, you know, together we actually had a stronger voice and like we, we were able to then provide more information to the public to educate the public and policymakers about the the potential to transition to renewable energy. And that was the goal of this nonprofit. It was really to provide information on a large scale uh, about the potential to transition to clean renewable energy. And those, we use the scientific basis as these energy plans. And so this ended up helping to get laws passed in by, because policymakers just jumped onto this, you know, without much effort, you know, a lot of people are just really interested in this. And yeah, we get, ended up getting up to now 19 laws and states and, and territories in the U.S. and 180 cities and uh, lots of other uh, lots of other policy actions that were that used this as either the scientific basis or you know this helped other guide other people to really um, push these laws forward. And and in fact, this these plans ended up being the scientific basis for what's called the Green New Deal. And uh, which was a policy proposal to transition the U.S. to 100% renewables by 2030. Right. But the Green New Deal has never been voted on in Congress, even though there are some resolutions proposed. Um, so anyway, it's you know since then the Solutions Project has kind of evolved and they've taken a slightly different direction. And I'm not so much involved in it anymore. But it's uh, but I'm you know we interact and they still. This Solutions Project still takes our energy plans and has them on our, their website and promotes renewable energy. Um, I know you you've published well you've published a lot, but you also have several books out there. You want to talk a little bit about your books? Um, you know the two recent ones are are what No Miracles Needed was published in 2022 and 100% Clean Renewable Energy and Storage for Everyone in 2020. Yeah, so. Yeah, well, most of my I've published six books, and five of them are textbooks for for classroom. Right. Uh, you know, the first one was a modeling book, and then I did one on air pollution and climate change, more of a science book. And then I did some revisions of those, and then, but as you mentioned, yeah, the last two are really on energy, one hundred percent clean renewable energy and storage for everything, which is also a textbook, but it has, so it has a lot of equations. Uh, but no miracles needed is this most recent one. And that's really a layman's version of the textbook version of 100% clean renewable energy. So it really talks about how we can transition to 100% renewables, what we need to do in each energy sector, what are the benefits, what's the cost benefits, and, and can we keep the grid stable? How do we keep the grid stable? But it also talks about why we don't need miracle technologies to solve this problem. We can use technologies that we have today, 95% of which are available. And and to, to move forward, and, and it goes through why we don't want to use carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, small modular nuclear reactors, um, bioenergy, and why geoengineering is not useful either. So what are you and your team, your students working on now? Well, we're still working on energy plans, but we're looking at more details of the hydrogen system, looking at... Uh, details of carbon capture, for example, and you know issues associated with it. We're looking at microgrids uh, and actually have a laboratory now to uh, develop our own microgrid for remote communities 
And because there are a lot of people without energy, there's a billion people in the world who have no access to energy or very limited access to electricity, for example. And so microgrids are isolated grids that can be helpful to remote communities. Communities, And so we're trying to see if it's how feasible it is just to power a community that's off the grid just with wind, water, solar, heat pumps, uh, electric induction cooktops, some hydrogen production and use and uh, uh, storage and different types of storage. Um, for our listeners who don't know, microgrids, that's off the network, but you know, where you'd have a bunch of houses that may have individual solar and stuff and they're all wired together. So they're sharing electricity among the community, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're, um, I mean, we're about to wrap up here. Um, any final comments you want to make? Anything you want to share with our listeners? Well, I'll just say that, I mean, I remain optimistic. I think we can solve these problems, but we have to focus. We have to keep our eye on the ball and not diverge from our goals, which are to focus on transitioning energy to 100% clean renewable energy and storage for everything. And because we just don't have time or resources to try things that are partial solutions that might reduce things by a few percent. Uh, we, we need to focus on things we know work that can be implemented quickly. So I would just encourage you not to get distracted by these, what do we call non, non-solutions or non-starter solutions. Sure. Um, anyway, but I do remain optimistic that we, we can have a, get, we can get to that the right solution if we collectively decide to do that. That's great. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Um, is there any place you'd like listeners or to go to learn more about your work, website, or anything you'd like to send people to? Um, well, I could send you a website if you want to include one on the link, but I, I don't okay, have... Okay, I can do that. Yeah, because it's kind of time, kind of long to, <laughs> to, to say <laughs> orally. <laughs> Perfect. So our listeners can go to climatehour.net. You'll see the listing. You'll see the links there. So thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.